what's up guys hope everyone's doing well just finished recording episode 36 of the first offense audio installment this is a special episode if you haven't already seen we have a guest brandon henry he's a tire changer in nascar right now most know him as the pit marine because he was actually a marine and later became a crewman and today brandon's going to share how he went from watching dale jr win Talladega in the early 2000s to watch in the Talladega race in a tent in Afghanistan in 2014 to eventually standing on the pit wall at Talladega and pitting cars. So it's a really cool story. It's great for anyone who wants to join the military or even wants to join NASCAR because he talks about the steps that he took to get to where he is today and the steps that he continues to take to progress in the sport. Make sure to stay tuned to the end because we gave him some rapid fire questions, some fan questions, and he gave some really good insight firsthand about what it's like being in the pits, pitting cars, the intensity of it, and some other cool things about it. One more thing before we talk to Brandon, there was a few audio issues in the first half of the podcast, so just bear with us. Brandon lives down in North Carolina and I'm up in Massachusetts, so we had to make it work. Regardless, it was a great time talking to Brandon, and I'm sure you're going to love it. So here he is, Brandon Henry on the First Offense audio installment. Hope you guys like it. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? Pretty good. What were you just talking to the boys about going down today? Yeah, yeah, just discovering, uh, discussing travel and whatnot. You guys carpool and everything to save gas and money and everything. Yep. Uh, normally, if if we're not flying somewhere, yeah, we'll uh, we'll usually carpool together unless you know the company has has us going in company vehicles. But I think yep. this is going to be one of those things where we're we're going in co- uh, company vehicles since it's such a long trip. Hmm. What tracks do you fly to, like the ones out on the, in California and everything? I guess you could uh, pretty much anything that's over a four-hour drive because there's, there's a lot of tracks local, I would yep. say, to us, local being four hours or, or lower. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, Atlanta, Bristol, Darlington, those are all, you know, local to the area. Yep. Quick, easy drives. All right, well, um, this is probably going to make us stop after about an hour, so I might just call you back one more time. Okay. So it'll just no be a recording. So I guess just tell us about yourself, where you're from, how old you are, everything like that. All right, yep. So I'm, uh, I've just turned 29, August 5th. Uh, I'm from Alabama originally, a little yep. place called Leeds. It's about – 25 to 30 minutes west of Talladega so naturally I went to all the Talladega races when I was a kid oh cool so that's what like the early 2000s and everything yep my first race was 2000 uh I believe it was the April race I think Bobby Hamilton won that race or Bobby Hamilton Jr. I forget which one mm-hmm. so the the 55 square d car I definitely still remember the car you know, back then you know as a kid you kind of cars more than the drivers usually yeah yeah i think the the first car i saw was you know that in those days teams would bring out show cars mm-hmm. um, they still do it but not quite as frequently as they used to but even living 30 minutes from the track 
there would be a lot of meet and greets around where I grew up. So I was able to go see uh, Scott Riggs' car. I believe they had it set up at our Walmart or somewhere. I don't remember. But that was the number 10 Nesquik car. And that was the first race car I ever saw in person. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I got hooked from there, you know, even being as young as I was, I think I was probably nine, I believe. I might've been younger than that. I don't remember. So you've been into NASCAR pretty much your whole life then. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've definitely been, I was obsessed with it as a kid and you know, it's my mom's trying to get me to, to think about an actual career at that age and uh look at look at uh, tell me i need to look into an actual job so that's what i started searching around trying to figure out what my my calling was you know so of course in in high school i was already committed to joining the military my first choice actually wasn't the marine corps it was the army yeah and i didn't know what i wanted to do i really didn't until probably the day before I signed, but no, my first choice was the army and I changed my mind on that literally just because my friends told me to, <laughs> there, there was no, there was no real process or anything. They were just like, man, I think the Marines are better. I was like, uh, you know, I didn't really know I was a kid. So I started doing some research and was like, yeah, they look better. They got the better history and, yeah. and all that good stuff. So they I, uh, swapped. They definitely have, like, the reputation as being the most challenging. And obviously, it looks like they have the hardest boot camp and everything. So, Yeah, when, when we talk about basic training, it's definitely uh, – it, it's more challenging than the rest. Uh, you don't even have to go through it to see that. You know, you just look at the requirements for all the branches. <laughs> and ours were, were definitely higher than everybody else's. Now, of course, there's other types of uh, – what would you call units – within the branches that would definitely be tougher than say our, our basic training. Oh, okay. Sorry. Twitter's blowing me up here. So you, um, you would, is that like challenge something that you wanted to take on? Like the, that it's known as being challenging and everything. Is that kind of what helped make that decision? Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, I was, I always liked being outside and even though I spent a lot of my time inside playing video games and whatnot, uh, I still really enjoyed being outside. And my grandfather was in the army in the Vietnam era. So he had instilled a lot of that military-esque mindset or whatever, you know, as much as you could give to a, a child. And that influenced it a lot. I I did want to challenge because, I mean, for – High school was obviously as a challenge in itself, but I had never really, I didn't feel like I had branched out or done anything important, I suppose. Uh, I did, I did scouts as a kid and I got picked up the Eagle Scout rank or whatever you call it. And I still didn't feel like fulfilled, I guess. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to do something that was, that meant more, that I selfishly probably just, seemed cooler you know something that was cooler and that had pretty much pretty much everything I was looking for I think I was talking to my recruiter one day and you're supposed to I don't know how they do things now but in those days we would pick out uh 
they would put a stack of cards in front of you and you would pick out which card meant or four of which cards meant the most to you. So the, the four I picked out, I don't remember specifically, but I know it was, it was things like pride of belonging and uh, physical fitness challenge, you know, things like that. Like, yeah, I think that some of the other choices that I didn't pick were along the lines of, I guess, like academic advancement mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Stuff I didn't really care about at the time, although I should have, because uh, I ended up going to school after I got out. You know, the GI Bill helped me out with that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, while I was a kid, I was I was seeking something. I don't I don't know for sure if it was the challenge. I, like I said, I think it was just that fulfilling feeling. You know, yeah, I feel yeah. like you did something, something big. Yeah. Um, I'll have to ask my brother if they had him pick the cards because he actually just got out of the Air Force in the fall. Yeah. And he's going to heat an air conditioning school for off of the GI Bill. So no, oh, that's way. good. There's yeah. a lot of money there. Yeah. So you enlist in the Marines. Um, do you want to talk about like basic training that I read the crucible 54 hours you get like food and sleep and everything is that how is that and this is in Paris Island right correct yes so you're if you're what, what would it be if your home of record is west of the Mississippi River you mm-hmm. are slotted to go to uh, San Diego as Camp Pendleton yep. if you're east of that river you go to Paris Island and I believe all of the females, no matter where you're located, go to Paris Island. Pretty sure that's right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, man, what a culture shock. That, that was something that they obviously you've probably heard it a thousand times. Like Marines never forget about, you know, boot camp and that transition, the, uh, the transformation that, that, that takes place, you know, a, a brainwashing, really, for lack of better words, in the nicest way I can put it. But they – kind of just tear down your civilian like way of thinking and they build it they build your mentality back up to where you you process things you know a little bit differently maybe not necessarily smarter but in a completely different fashion so it gets you very used to constant like being in a constant state of pressure and stress so that stuff comes more naturally later on and Nowadays, um, I think, you know, it, it carries over a lot to the pit crew profession because you deal with pressure a lot better. Now, the downside to that is pride. Now, you get – they instill a intense feeling of pride when, when you're in the Marine Corps. You know, you're supposed to be better than everybody else and everybody can tell you you're wrong and all that good stuff. So, guys, and for me specifically – I have a hard time, you know, I'm very competitive. And if I'm not doing right, you know, first critic right off the bat, I know exactly something up and easy to self up when you're, when you're, you know, trained that way. Mm-hmm. So that would think, um, but maybe not at the same time, you know, it does prove fruitful in a competitive job like this, but, Anyway, trailing off. So back to the uh, the crucible. Yeah, it's fifty two, fifty four hours, however long it is. I don't, I don't remember, but it's uh, it's a lot. How would I say it? Not, there's not a whole lot that's released on it. 
I've, I've come to notice. I don't know if that's like one of those we're supposed to keep it a secret kind of things or, or what, but it's no secret that it's tough. It's, uh, yeah. it, it's the, you know, final culminating event before you're declared a Marine. They give you the Eagle Globe and Anchor and uh, a Crucible. So you'll, we'll start from the top. So you leave your barracks at about, I think it's zero two in the morning. It's two o'clock. Yep. And you take a, I believe it's a nine mile hike out to where the crucible is supposed to be. And you split into different, uh, the, the companies that you go with, they split into different groups, uh, platoons, if you will. And I think even we even split down to squads from there. So you'd only have like eight to 12 uh, recruits and you would accomplish various tasks off, you know, little food. Uh, some guys got no food, depending on how they performed. You would go through various stations that consisted of things like land navigation, um, pugle sticks. You know, it's just two big rods that look like Q-tips that you just beat the snot out of each other with. Mm -hmm. uh, boxing, all sorts of, you know, bizarre stuff, like all the way down to like radio communications and stuff like that. And there's a lot of team building exercises you know, climbing, climbing a tower that you physically cannot do by yourself. It's impossible unless you're, you know, like Ninja Warrior type. Yeah. But uh, so they, they force you to undergo a lot of that. And uh, being under that immense stress and lack of food, lack of sleep makes teamwork very hard, especially considering the Marine Corps is a melting pot uh, consisted of people from all over the country. A yep. lot of people from outside of the country. I know when I was in Afghanistan, a solid probably half, a little over half of our platoon wasn't even from the United States. So wow. melting pot, big time. Yeah. So at the at the end of that, uh, I think from all the hiking that you do, they say they advertise it at being over forty miles or whatever in yep. two days that you, that you have to hike. And of course, you know, if you take the infantry route like me, that kind of becomes normal after a while. They infantry Marines are obsessed with hiking, you know, just putting a lot of weight on your back and carrying it a far distance. That's just one of them things they love. You know, like a huge backpack filled with all your stuff and everything. <laughs> yeah, all your stuff. How much do those weigh? I would guess at least 25 pounds, right? Oh, uh, on a good day. So... In boot camp, they might have weighed forty. Now, uh, in the in an actual in an actual infantry battalion, I we easily carried a hundred to hundred ten pounds. Wow! And that that I think that counts the uh, plate carrier that you wear, the body armor. I believe it's That's been a little while. Crazy. I didn't ever actually, weigh, but I know we got weighed for a manifest overseas. And it was something like that. Some, it was. Uh, but you get, you know, it's it's for a little while. It's a lot of these versus your body in a long. I would think, I would think that that would make pitting like the coordination of pitting a car and everything feel pretty easy because of you learn all the camaraderie and the 
just teamwork there that yeah that goes that goes back to as you would think so when when you start this yeah right off the bat it feels kind of easy and you you feel like you should find what some other people are who really experienced what you have but that was something with that that I had to overcome and understand that not everybody got the opportunity to do it. to look at it that way rather in an egotistical manner because yeah I got blessed with a, a functioning body go do those things and now I'm you know yeah, a lot of people can't so it's best yeah. to look at it that way and uh, you know it it really only helps with I'd say pressure like uh, physically it's an entirely different dance uh, you're not having to carry a lot of stuff on your back but you're having to move very quickly on a lot of on, on you know nothing carrying nothing yeah. you have to be loud on your feet it's a it's a whole different thing and uh I mean, the only time I ever had to be fast uh, was on, and it's a entirely different mentality. So, yeah, yeah it physically, it does. Uh, the the fitness definitely helps coming over here. Uh, that that I learned uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, and it was it's kind of unfortunate, really, because when I first started off, I had a wrist injury. Uh, so I was, I had to sit for six months, I believe. I had a uh, TFCC tear, which is the cartilage uh, your carpal bones, like behind your fingers in your hand. Mm-hmm. So tore and my carpal bones collapsed. So I was out of the game for six months and not making any progress. It was very good. But that, uh, Fitness-wise, all of that progress I made while I was in the Marine Corps sort of dwindling away because if you don't do anything for six months, it takes a big toll on your body. Yeah, yeah that's going to be tough. Yeah. So I was being careless with it, and I'd you know, just around waiting for it to heal proactive like I should have back a lot. But mm-hmm. a different dance in this job. Yeah. So – back to the Marines. So you're in boot camp and basic training. So do you have any idea what your job is going to be? Did you have that decided already? Did you know where you were going to go or what, what happens next? Yeah. So you're talking to your recruiter and you're trying to get into the Marine Corps and you're doing your paperwork. You'll sign mm-hmm. a specific contract for a job. Yep. And I just picked it. Um, there's also an option to go in as an open contract, which puts uh, your life pretty much in the Marine Corps' hands as far as what you're going to do for your job after you get out of Marine Corps uh, basic training. Yep. They tell you, they assign a job to you. And that's a really, for anybody out there that's trying to get that route because they're going to put you where they need you. And that's uh, where a lot of my, my friends from boot camp ended up in jobs they hated. So you have to go into it with your mind completely set and clear and understand exactly what you want and have a, a goal in your head as far Mm -hmm. as what you're trying to do and what you want to accomplish while you're in, what your goal is when you get out. A lot of guys go into this, this whole thing with no preparation and just going day by day. 
I was, I was one of those, you know, I had my job set in my head, but I didn't really have an overall goal or a plan. And that set me back a lot, you know, when it was time to uh, leave the military and come back to civilian life. Yeah. So you were infantry. Um, were you, what, what was like your first year after basic training? Like, like, were you deployed right away or how'd that work? No, it, it took a little while. Those first few months are really, they're really tough. Uh, first stories from different jobs. Typically, yeah, to your unit, it is kind of what everybody will tell you. Uh, it, yes, but, uh, it's accepted by those guys. And you go through a lot of strenuous stuff, a lot of late night clean a lot, you run a lot, you carry a lot of heavy weight that some of the more seasoned guys do. So if you uh, have ever seen Jarhead, that's a accurate film when it comes to what it's like, you know, coming into a, a Marine Corps unit. You get abused a little bit, but it's necessary. You know, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people will disagree, but it's necessary to establish that almost a bond by fire, you know. Uh, yeah. nothing Nothing brings people together like pain and suffering as bad as that sounds so it's uh it's required in that setting it's a job not uh income or you know sales or anything we're not talking about none of that we're talking about so you have to take things to the extreme and that's what we do so that those first couple months are, are pretty bad but after you get through it uh you, you begin to see those bonds form and you hold on to those you know for the rest of your life Yep. And you were deployed to Afghanistan? Yes. Uh, deployed in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went up there uh, when in April. I think I was the third group to deploy. I, my, we went in waves, I guess, just for uh, logistical purposes. So we was I was there till October 3rd. So I was What was it like there? Well, it was, it was, it was hot, and yeah, you know there was a lot of. I guess uh, it's a, it's another culture shock. You know, the military is full of those. You you get there and it's it's very yeah it's very hot. It's dry. It's not humid like it is here. Um, mm-hmm. It smells bad. A whole lot of nice things to say about that area of the world, except maybe the the sunset says were beautiful yep. from that and a, uh, a place like that normal or air conditioning we had a suspended shower that was really just water get above you that you know leaks down you can get sort of shower and it runs out very so hot and during the day the water is so hot you use it so yep showers came you know whenever you could manage probably every two weeks but you would uh we you know baby wipes become your best friend because yeah <laughs> you, you gotta find a way to keep clean and uh keep it prevent your body from getting infected if you have any wounds or anything which is fairly mm-hmm. banged up cut whatever and you got to look after that stuff so it was it was a time it was uh it was a rough time but you know, a lot of us come back different people 
from those places. I, I believe I was um, one of the lucky ones. I didn't uh, – I don't have life-breaking disabilities, you know, that keep me from living a life comfortably. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you know, a lot of my friends weren't so lucky. But came back with severe mental – it makes uh, living life very difficult for them. Yep. I, I try to do my best to uh, support, you know, them and organizations that back things like veteran suicide and, uh, you know, issues like that amongst veterans. I try to support them through my social media as much as I can. And I need to, uh, I need to re-up that because I've been slacking a little bit lately. <laughs> yeah, I think the number of veteran suicides a day, isn't it upwards of like 20-something? 22 is the official number. It's the average number. That's and, crazy. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's sad, but when we were overseas, we, as a battalion, we didn't lose anybody, but we had a, a, a another battalion that we operated with, and they lost three people there. And when we come back, you know, ever since we've been back, so that was 2014, Yep. Uh, you know, it's been, uh, was it eight years now and we've lost yeah, nine, nine guys in our battalion to suicide. So it's a very real problem and everything we can do to, to even just raise awareness to where people see, you know, that this is going on is a problem and needs to be fixed there. We've come a long way, you know, from what I've been told from veterans who were around in the eighties the 70s they said the you know the va today is leaps and bounds beyond what it was before the va hospitals that are taking care of our veterans and yeah i mean if that's one thing that i'm trying to put more emphasis on uh those problems because i i don't believe it's right if i have this uh this big following on something like tiktok and i'm not using it for something like that you know Mm -hmm. so I, I carry around uh, a rock that has Eric Ward's name on it. Uh, if anybody has seen my TikTok, they've seen, uh, or my Instagram, they've seen that rock. And Eric Ward is, was a uh, soldier and took his own life. And his, uh, I got the pleasure of meeting his parents at Michigan and uh, talking to them. And that was, that was really cool because I've been carrying their son's rock around for a while. They spread these rocks uh, at very, in various places throughout the world. Yep. And, you know, people find the rocks and they post it on social media and go hide it for someone else. But this specific rock I take everywhere with me and I don't leave and hide it because I'm taking them to, you know, all the racetracks. Yeah. How so how did you end up with that rock? Uh, our official name, John Stacy. Mm-hmm. He knows uh, the wards and he spoke to them long before I knew about them. And they or uh, John found me one day and, you know, I've always been a big advocate about veteran suicide. You know, I've had troubles with it with my friends and he gave me that rock and said, you know, this is what they do. The wards send out these rocks everywhere. We just think it'd be cool if you could take it to every racetrack like I do. And I said, okay, you know, cool. So it sounds great. I, it's, it's close. It's a serious problem. So it's a, it's a real cool thing they're doing. And it's one of those things, you know, you can tell that they're, they're doing it for the right reasons. And there's a lot of people out there that don't, they do it for the, for the clout, for the money. Yeah. And 
it's a uh, this is a very serious thing to them. So and it meant a lot that they would you know give me a rock with their son's name on it to take with me. So so I do it. Yeah, that's cool. I saw the TikTok where you had it and you said that you were able to meet them. Yeah, it was a uh, a little bit surreal. I've known them a, a long time now, and I haven't uh, haven't ever got to meet them. So I was happy. I was happy about that. Nice. Yep. So you leave Afghanistan. Where do you go from there? After Afghanistan, uh, we came back, and I, I mean, we pretty training, uh, training evolution. You start training for your next deployment. Uh, it was a what we call a UDP training deployment to Japan. So we would go. We went to Okinawa, Japan, and we trained the Japanese Defense Force there and worked with them. Uh, we went from there to Gotemba, which is in mainland Japan at the base of Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. And we hiked up and down Mount Fuji, training with the uh, Japanese there, uh, keeping relations up, teaching them the way we do things. And it, uh, the, so it, Japanese Defense Force isn't really what you would call an army. It's more of just like a large, you know, police outfit and that was an entirely different animal from the next place we went, which was South Korea. We went down to South Korea and trained the rock Marines there. It's the Republic of South Korea or Republic of Korea Marines. And they are essentially just a, they're a Korean version of our Marine Corps. The the logo is very similar. All of their values and the way they do things are very similar. And we have a direct link to them when it comes to to training we send marines over there to pass off everything we've learned to them and train you know face to face with them even with the language barrier the camaraderie with the korean people was bizarre yeah it's like we had known them forever and it's uh it was pretty cool it's it's cool to meet people like that and i still have quite a few of those those guys on facebook i can't understand a thing they say and they can't understand me but it's cool to you know, still see them. Uh, a couple of them have come to America since. Yeah. That, that's interesting that you were able to like connect with them without even knowing their language just because of how hardcore the camaraderie is and everything that you yeah. learn. It's like that, uh, that trial by fire, you know, that, that bond that comes from being in what we call the suck, you know, it's, uh, it's a funny word for it, but, in South Korea, you know, it's it got as cold as negative twenty five, mm-hmm. and we're not used to that. You know, being here, the, those guys they've seen it before. You know, so in that you know period of suffering in the middle of the night when we can't sleep, sometimes all we had to all you know, all the only thing we had to do, you know, was just sit up and sit by a fire and try to communicate with them, and it uh, it made for some some pretty funny moments. So yeah, <laughs> you can appreciate that when. Uh, when things are, are tough, you know, you can appreciate things like that. When we're back home and everything's comfortable, you know, you, you lose sight of things that mean the most like that and the human, human interaction and seeing Take how people, granted. absolutely. Yeah. There's yeah. a big problem with that here these days. Yeah. My brother was there for a year. Oh yeah. I wasn't there that long. <laughs> That's, that was where he first went. And then, how long were you there for? I think I was only there 
about two months, I think. Uh, I was there through Christmas 2015. And so I stayed, I stayed Christmas there. And that was, uh, that was another, a whole different experience. Uh, I got to, I went to the new Star Wars movie release there. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. So that was really cool to see a Star Wars release in full Korean. It was. (laughs) So yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, All the advertisements and costume statues, they were all in Korean. So I didn't understand anything that was going on, but I thought it was cool because I love Star Wars. Yeah. I would think they would, it'd be in English because it's, because <laughs> there was probably a lot of you guys right around there that were. Yeah, no, going. but we went, uh, we went to Seoul to see it. So it, was, oh, uh, it wasn't yeah. like it was on base. Yeah, it was yeah. in their, their capital. Mm-hmm. Actually, am I stupid? I think that's their capital. Pretty sure Seoul. How, how um, far into your term are you at this point? Th- two years, three years? Oh, in NASCAR? No, in the Marines. Oh, at like the, when at the, in... Okay, at the deployment point. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the end of my third year. So I was coming up on my my fourth and final year. So when we came back from Japan, it was one of those just set sail and finish out my uh, my deployment. I focused a whole on my fitness and my well being, my my health because I spent a lot of time. In the Marine, doing a lot of just junk food eating, uh, drinking. I drank, I was in as most Marines do, mm-hmm. and so I was more on my uh, my back home and not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, but if we go back to Afghanistan, that was one of those turning points when I was starting to figure out what I might want to do because I was in the USO tent down there, you know, USO is brings a lot of comfort to combat zones for us they you'll see them at the airport and stuff like that for traveling veterans but they had a tent set up where they played movies they played uh tv shows news whatever so we can keep you know we had a place that felt kind of like home while yeah. we were in. And so that was on that was on the base camp leatherneck though so our particular unit was based off that um, off that base out but we got to come back for R&R every show so I was in that tent and uh, I because it's a different part of the world but yeah and this one is 2014 so in that fall I saw a couple guys sitting around some of it is just this is it also this is the time period where jimmy so i didn't really uh didn't keep up with it as much and so i started watching it and i I started thinking about it and i was like well i don't know anything about the sport as far as if i wanted to work in it i don't know anything about that i don't have any contact so i kind of dismissed it but if you feel me fast forward to when i left the marine corps uh, you have to take this course called TRS. It's a transition course into the civilian world that basically it sits you down and tells you common sense stuff. Like, uh, you know, you, you have like they they actually have to include a on how as a civilian. I know that sounds funny, but it's 
say and do things out in the, you know, the real world that we yeah. did while we were. So uh, a lot of, a lot of courses like that, they had a, what you would, you would think of like a career day. They would have a, a career day type thing where all these different careers would come in and represent themselves to us and try to convince, you know, Marines of certain sets to go into, you know, their line of work. A lot of my, a uh, lot boys went the law enforcement route as a uh, as I carry over into law enforcement as far as leadership and uh, bearings and the way you understand certain things works out a lot there but I didn't want to do that so yeah there was a representative from Universal Institute there and I talked to him a little bit and I my mind went back to when I went to that tent in 2014 and I was like, well, do you know anything? You know, I, I kind of want to do something motorsports related. And he told me about the NASCAR school, which is here in North Carolina, right down the road. Where I live. And it's NASCAR Technical Institute. It's a branch of UTI. Mm-hmm. And I uh, took his folder and everything. I wrote all that information. I know to study. And I went home to Alabama. And I moved in. Uh, moved in and uh, you know I'm just here until I can get back on and get some but that kind of changed when I, I saying I didn't go through and they feel I don't know for lack of better words important you know, go through and you did didn't really seem to matter you know so you lose that pride of belonging and that drive and that motivation. So then back to my stuff one day and I found that folder. A guy, uh, I think he still works at NTI. He's a, uh, and we had a long conversation and uh, I eventually picked up and I, I picked up and moved back. And, uh, and I attended the school. Yeah. So how was that? You just, what do you learn there? Is it a specific thing in NASCAR? Do you learn everything related to NASCAR? Where do they start you out? So you signed up for a particular algorithm. It's, uh, yeah, you want to, I think in order to do the NASCAR related stuff, you had, it was mandatory to go through all of the standard automotive courses. So your mm-hmm. typical like engines, HVAC, electronics, stuff like that. You have to take all of those courses in order to get to the cool stuff. So I went through all the automotive courses and then you start one of the three. I think there's three. Yeah, one of the three courses. There's a NASCAR engines, there's welding, and there's fabrication. And so there's actually four. So then, the, then you have pit crew. There's an actual pit crew course there. So... You start one of those and you, you know, go on to the next and the next and the next until you get to reach the end of those four courses and you graduate. But yeah, so there's, there's a fabrication where you learn to manipulate metal. You know, you learn the old fashioned way of uh, making a fender, how somebody will put a door on a race car, uh, things like that, how to, how to angle metals, measure, do the, do the math in your head to cut and just, you know, make metal into, into things. Yeah, and that was a that was a really cool course 
taught taught me a lot. Then you have welding. I was never any good at welding, but you get the full rundown. You know, they'll they'll teach you their way of doing welding, and you learn, and you come in every day, and you just weld. And it's really cool. Uh, NASCAR engines, you'll break down an actual NASCAR motor. It's uh, one of the – I think it's one of the old uh, – most of them are old Dodge R5 motors that we no longer use, you know, since mm-hmm. Dodge left. Yeah. And uh, that's most of them. Probably a couple of shit. But you'll break down one of those and you'll learn everything from uh, pretty much everything you can think of. the From the lash on the rocker arms down to timing the thing manually. Cool. And it's, it's pretty cool. You get, to, mm-hmm. you get to learn all that stuff and then you – uh, the last one is pit crew, of course, and that's where my in, my interest got peaked. So I went through all of this stuff, and I liked it all. And I was, you know, hell bent on getting into a shop job and working behind the scenes. But when I got my hands on a thunder gun, I was I didn't want to do anything. that, yeah you up in the, in the different positions you do pit stops like the old six-man pit stops back in the day before they went down to five you yep. do a lot of those in that choreography so they can you know keep a lot of people engaged in doing it and yeah I, I never went back from there i started networking immediately trying to figure out uh who in that building could put me where i needed to be and eventually i ended up put in front of Chuck Efall. He ran a uh, place called Excalibur Pit Crew back then. Mm-hmm. It has uh, since undergone new management, but that's where I started out. And uh, I started training every week there, twice a week, until he deemed he ready to go to the racetrack and never looked back since. So does this, like you're you're working for him, but can you get put on all different types of cars? It's not one specific car, right? Yes, that's right. So it's like a booking agency. So we yep. are independent contractors. So okay. we're under contract by a certain, by a company. And this company takes in orders for pit crew members from other teams. And then they mm-hmm. fill those orders with us. Yep, that's cool. So basically they'll say, we'll get guys there for you at the track. And then you just pay us and they'll be there ready to change your tires or do you have to go and meet with them or anything and or do no, you just don't, we, we don't uh for necessarily proceed with them but there are some of our guys do work for these teams on the scenes in the shop some of them do uh it, it's really about just filling those orders it's about developing the relationships with those teams and mm-hmm. so they they are seeing the familiar faces come back know us and we get to meet them and talk to them every week and yeah we're getting working guys that that bond you know and they uh they they know who we are and as long as we can provide that service to them efficiently and we do it well we do it right and we just you just give them give them everything you can and like i said now now it's about building relationships instead of just filling orders yeah and they'll keep calling you back so what's the first race you pitted? Um, 
is it like a few months after you finish the school? Is it right after? How's that work? Yeah. It was about six months, I believe, of training before I actually went in. Uh, I was pitting the 49 truck at Michigan. It was uh, Ray Cicerelli. Mm-hmm. And we finished uh, we finished ninth that day. So oh, it was, nice. Uh, it, was a, it was a really cool day. Uh, Top 10 on your first day? Yeah. Yeah. nine, Crazy. But that was a career best for him as well. What's what was it like um, sitting standing on the wall, seeing that truck flying to the pits? Was it were you used to it? Were you ready for it, or was it pretty nerve wracking? I think it was a. I was I I was ready for it, and it's kind of mm-hmm. going through the motions as I normally was, but it was terrifying at the same time. So you, you your adrenaline's through the roof, and I even ha- I still have those, you know, today three four years later. It's, it's the same thing. You know, your adrenaline gets up. You start thinking about what you're about to do. And sometimes you overthink too much. But, yeah, the adrenaline's uh, much higher your first your first go. And you start mm-hmm. thinking about all the times you watch people get hit on YouTube, you know. And yeah. all those things come into play. Am I going to be accurate, fast? Am I going to mess something up? And you almost always mess something up. But uh, those first few times, anyway. I, uh, it actually, oh, hold on, excuse me a second. Jeez. <clears throat> yeah, sorry, I was on a uh, Discord server earlier and people were talking. No worries. But about it. anyway, uh, yeah, so, yeah, those were not good pit stops <laughs> for mm. that first time. That was rough. But yeah, I mean, it, that's the trick to the whole thing is managing. Your, uh, your mind, the adrenaline, all those little thoughts and doubts and whatnot. Is a car going to hit me? Am I going to mess up? You, you learn over time to just let muscle memory kick in and do its thing and focus on doing your job. And that's why you see a lot of, a lot of the big time guys, one of them will get clipped by a car and you won't see it. He won't skip a beat. Yeah, you know? he'll just keep uh, going. You kind of get used to it. And I think a lot of those guys have probably been hit so much. They just don't even care at this point. Yeah. In practice and everything. Yep. And I would think that the muscle memory thing would start to come naturally, but it's the stuff that like when the hose gets stuck under the tires or when the fender smashed in and you can't pull the tire out, stuff like that is where you would start to run into all the problems and things you've never seen before probably happen all the time. Yeah, and, and that's where experience comes into play. So if you experience an, uh, that type of thing happen enough times, you'll always be ready for it. Mm-hmm. So the whole fender, so say just, just the fender thing being kicked in, whatever, can't get the tire out. I've, it's kind of gotten to the point where now, um, just speaking from my own perspective and experience, if I see the fender caved in when I go around, I'm already going to be prepared for that. You know, whereas before I wouldn't have even noticed, you know, the fender was kicked in. Yep. You, get, you get that tunnel vision and you don't notice until it goes wrong. And you kind of the, you know, a newer person might panic under that pressure and in, in that situation. So later on, yeah, you you begin to feel everything and have a particular reaction for everything. If, say, your hose gets hung. You almost, depending on where you're at in the car and during the pit stop, you'll you'll know you know uh, what what caused it most likely, yep. and be able to react fast. So it's all about experience. That's why those uh, that's why the the big time guys can do what they do without skipping that beat or thinking twice. 
and they can fix it fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, did you have to learn how to make adjustments on the cars and like maybe put tape on the grill, tear off stuff like that? Is that, <laughs> did you learn that later? Or were you doing that right from the start? Uh, I didn't do a whole lot of it my first year or two. Um, but now it seems like it's now it seems like I do it all the time. Yeah. Um, it, there's a lot of taking shock packers out, you know, when the tire is off or putting them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in the rear of the car, you might have to pull or put in a rubber into the spring uh, to change the way, you know, that car uh, re- behaves in the corner and travels. So, that, yeah, stuff like that, you kind of get used to it. Um, you learn to not second guess it. And you just trust yourself. Uh, a lot of guys might not be mechanically inclined. So if they've never made a shock adjustment and you tell them to, they might second guess themselves. And that would uh, obviously slow down the stop and it would reflect badly on them. But if you're, you know, a little bit more mechanically inclined and understand how the car works, then those things come a lot more naturally. So yeah, I had to, I had to pull brake tape at um, Coda and I actually uh, being in the middle of that muscle memory and remembering that I had to get that brake tape, I actually stepped past it and had to, had to go back and get it. So yeah, oh, still, yeah. still learning. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've been doing this te- technically, this is my fourth year, but I didn't really do much my first year. So I'm mm-hmm. still, still learning. You had that learning. injury in your first year, right? Yeah. yeah so that stuff. slowed you down. This is just a question I had. It looks like there's almost a blind spot on one of the lugs, depending because of where the hub is. Is that true? I was watching one of your videos. Like, you can't see the lug, so you have to kind of guess where it is. Oh, yeah. So, the nose cone that pokes out in the middle of the wheel there. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, that thing can be a nightmare when it comes to seeing that bottom lug. And that it's one of those things where I don't know how – a lot of guys do it, but if I'm not quite sitting low enough to, to see that lug nut and I'm already halfway through my pattern or something, I will, uh, or let's back up. So if I'm not low enough to hit it and I'm just looking down at it and I can't see it, I can kind of guess where it's at. Yeah. So uh, I'll go for that one first and I'll spend you know a couple fractions of a second more on that lug nut to make sure that I got it off if I can, because you can feel it, you know, after doing doing this so many times you get a feel for it so usually for me it's not necessarily guessing if i can see the other lugs i know where that one is i just can't see it so uh uh-huh i also try to wear i wear a light so i can see it better you know when it's uh, say a night race Mm -hmm. at that point i would probably i don't know i've even tilted my head down a little bit trying to see and that was uh probably a no-no because it throws off the muscle memory yeah yeah, I would think everything you got to do everything exactly the same every time, or else you'll start making mistakes. Yep, it's all about repetition. It looks like there's some drivers who fly into the pits a lot faster. Is that true? I mean, I don't know if it just looks like that on TV, but some of them are go sliding way in there. Is that have you had drivers like that? Yes, uh, that's it's actually uh, it's a good thing when when they when a driver is more cautious and takes his time getting into the pits for some of us it's not necessarily a good thing it kind of slows us down a little bit uh we have to you have to judge where the car is going to stop a little bit differently than if he's just full sending it in hot mode all the way in 
uh, those when he's coming in hot, it almost speeds you up a little bit. You know, it it's like a it's like a morale booster when he's when he's excited and he's hopped uh, hyped up and he's sliding in there. It gets you excited. So. Yeah, you're gonna go flying in there and try to get yeah. it as fast. And you you put a little bit of extra pep in your step to get out of his way and get around to the right side. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I actually prefer the driver to come in a little bit hotter than uh, maybe somebody who just kind of creeps in. But uh, there are certain situations you can't help that. You know, uh, some guys that are new, they're not going to just send it off in there and risk hurting you or yep. somebody else. So you, you have to respect that. Do you think that the some of the boxes at some of the tracks are too small and NASCAR has to do something about it because <laughs> some of them are just tiny and you see guys diving out of the way every pit stop. Yeah, some of them are really tiny. Uh, I don't think NASCAR should intervene. No, absolutely no. not. Uh, I don't I don't think any of us really care that much about that particular subject to change it. Mm-hmm. So uh, all, all the advocates for, you know, keeping the pit crew safer quote unquote i don't i don't think a majority of us really really mind so it's, it's just, just part of the job people. it's just random people on the internet saying that oh yeah best type of people yeah so obviously the drivers are the ones that are looked at all the time and the team owners and everything but so much work obviously goes into the rest of the crew what's a week look like starting monday are you working like all day or do you have practice film how's how's that so me personally i don't when i get back home it's usually either late at night or early in the morning and i'll just i'll go to sleep Mm -hmm. um mondays is usually when i focus on just cleaning my apartment so i don't really have a uh, another job from you know pit crew yeah i don't have another job so i spend most of my week uh i'm wake up I'll go to the gym I'll hang out with some of the guys that aren't aren't practicing and aren't training uh on Tuesdays and Thursdays we uh practice pit stops yeah and uh of course that gets shuffled around sometimes depending on schedules uh Wednesday is more of a uh recovery day in between uh where I kind of I go back over and look at my GoPro footage and kind of critique myself a little bit as far as what I could do differently here and there and uh Thursday if we're not traveling, it's the same thing. I'm uh, look, uh, looking at film. I'm just hanging out with the guys, watching TV, binging some Netflix or something. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I do a lot of uh, a lot of gaming too. So probably you, more than I should. Do you play NASCAR? I do sometimes. Uh, a lot. A lot of my friends play uh, iRacing, but I'm I'm not dropping the money on it right yeah. now. So I'm I've been playing. Uh, yeah. So I'll I'll play. I play NASCAR heat sometimes I'll, I'll hop on there and I've got a wheel and stuff. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll rig it up and drive around with, with other people. It's fun, but not quite like uh I racing or anything like that, but it is fun yeah. to get on there and play it. Cause I, I am still a big race fan and yep. always will be. So, yeah, I'm going to ask who your favorite driver is and we'll go over some fan questions and everything later, but do you, are you on Xbox? I am. Yep. I'm on to... Xbox. Uh, I'm also on Steam. Oh, okay. I'll have to add you later. Yeah. By all means. All right. So, is there anything else I missed before we get into the bonus questions? I don't know. You can talk about whatever. I can, I can go for as long as you want. Yeah, but I will say uh, the whole work gets overlooked thing. Uh, 
I have to say, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, shop guys that blow my mind sometimes, you know, I could sit here and talk about pit crew and what, what we do and whatnot, mm-hmm. but what some of the big teams do, but the shop guys really can really blow you away sometimes, especially at some of the underfunded teams where, you know, they're uh, say, for example, um, I won't name any names or teams or anything, but I'll, I'll be out one night having a dinner and a couple of drinks at a local restaurant down here with my boys and some shop guys will come stumble in at the door, you know, 9 30, 10 PM at night, exhausted from the work day covered in grease. Mm-hmm. And they'll come in and have a drink or two and eat and then go home and knowing they have to be right back at it six in the morning, you know, the next morning. And then those same guys, I'll get out to the racetrack and I'll see them out there sweating their tails off, you know, getting the car ready for practice, for tech, for qualifying. And it's mind blowing. We're, we're talking, you know, people, people think 40, 50 hours a week is bad. These guys work a hundred or more. Yeah. Week, on know? top so, of travel. Yeah. It's crazy. Spending the entire weekend there. I, I can't, I can't imagine uh, dedicating every single second of my life, you know, when I'm not sleeping to, you know, putting together a race car and getting out there. So especially, like I said, some of these underfunded teams, yep. they're really impressive. Yeah, some of the teams with – there's teams that have three full-time employees and they're in the Cup Series. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then you got Joe Gibbs and HMS. I think they have well yeah, we over – everybody. Yeah. Yep. Pretty wild how that is. All about the money. Yep. So you want to get into these bonus questions? Yeah. All right, good. so – the first one, this one comes from D3Cal. These are all from Instagram. So we got a few on here. It okay. says, what's it like if you don't get all the lugs tight and the wheels loose or even falls off? <laughs> so I guess just what's the repercussions of what's it like? Oh, repercussions. Right okay, so I've never had one fall off. I have had one loose wheel, and it was uh, it was a panic moment because, I mean, just like any – race fan you know i've watched on tv and i've heard the terminology so the driver comes over the radio says he has a loose wheel my heart sinks because i had a a wheel at i believe it was daytona last year the xfinity race in february mm-hmm. i had uh I, I was questioning the right side of the car like i there there was uh so there's there's this deal where if you don't clean up the back of the wheel after we glue the lug nuts up like a lot yeah. of race fans, you've probably seen, you know, we've uh, tire changers will glue the lug nuts on. So the glue has to be cleaned from behind the wheel. And we use a pick to pick that out. Now, if you leave, if you leave that in there or don't get it all, it will, uh, when you install the lug nut during the pit stop, it'll get that glue on the studs and it'll gum it up. Mm-hmm. So on the following pit stop, when I went to go tighten the lug nuts on the right side, the gun bogged like it like they were tight, but they weren't. Yep. And that was just from lack of experience. I didn't have enough experience with that to know, you know, that's what happens. So, you know, for, for any guy that had more experience than me, he would have just stayed on the lug nut longer and got it tight. So yep. I didn't get it tight. And so the car will go back out and you'll hear driver would talk about a vibration and, so my heart sank and uh, we come back down pit road and we jacked up the right side and sure enough, it was loose. And uh, 
So you get your tail chewed pretty good afterwards, and uh, you go home, get your tail chewed some more, go to practice, and uh, get your tail to, uh, chewed some more. So, I mean, it's uh, on, on, say, a, a Gibbs or Hendrick or a Roush car, something like that, you could expect to not see the racetrack the next week. Because mm-hmm. you know, uh, these days, you know, with the whole one lug setup, <clears throat> you're you're seeing guys get four week vacations. So yeah, you can't afford to have a loose yeah, wheel. Can't do it. So it's it was the same thing with the five lug. Like you might not have gotten suspended for a loose wheel, but you're not you're not you're going to get a suspension. You know, from yeah. from your boss man. So yeah. Yep. So it's, uh, it's not good. Can you hear the driver? Or will the crew chief yell down and say? Do the right? Did you guys get the right sides tight? Was there an issue with the right side, or do you actually have like a little headset in your ear that you can listen to? Yeah, so we we wear radios, uh, mm-hmm. just just like any other crew member. Uh, we have ear molds that come off the wires, and we can put uh, directly into our ears. They're molded to fit our ears, and you can hear everything going on so in everything that you hear you know say on radioactive or yeah. if you're following the race you know on your app you nope. we can hear you can hear everything we hear so we just uh some of us can't talk it just depends on uh, the deal you're with uh, which car whether or not you're going to be required to speak or anything mm-hmm. like that so yeah we can hear everything do you have any funny stories about that with drivers with drivers uh Let's see. I was actually I pit. Uh, Jason White drove, I think, one of Ray, uh, Josh Rayum's trucks at Daytona earlier this year, and he uh, he quote Talladega Nights a lot. Really, a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let, let me think though, because I think I pit for Stephen Parsons for a little while, and he was he was fun. He was fun on the radio uh, when he was having a good day. But I don't know. I can't. I can't think of any stories right off the top of my head from uh, radio chatter. I don't know why. I'm. I'm sure I'll. I'll think of it as soon as we stop recording. But mm-hmm. yeah, no. It. It is entertaining. So to anybody out there, you know, you got the NASCAR app. You need to open that thing up and listen to some radio yeah. chatter sometimes because it can be. Yeah. It can yeah. be pretty good. It's got to be pretty funny too when you're standing on pit road looking out seeing their car drive by and hearing them. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially when they're upset with somebody. Yeah. yeah it's pretty funny. <laughs> All right. Unless, of course, you know, uh, yeah, it leads to an incident where you had to fix it. Yeah. Then it's not funny anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. The next one's from Dev, B-O-U-L-6. I don't know how to say that. It's, uh, what is your favorite part about the pits? Uh, favorite part? I think... You know, I haven't won, so I can't say winning. I imagine that would uh, probably take the cake if I ever did. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say those moments where <clears throat> where I feel like a race fan again, I think where uh, if I – every year at Daytona, you get that feeling, you know, where you, you take a minute, you stand on the wall, you look at the, you know, the crowd and the track and everything, and it kind of – it kind of comes back to you, you know, you get the, the dopamine release and you feel the tingles and stuff that you felt the first time you saw one of those big tracks, you know, and that's probably my, my favorite moment. Those, those moments when I can feel that again, and it kind of comes back to me. That's the, uh, that's the feeling I like. And it's probably, probably the best part and seeing, 
seeing fans around the pits and around the racetrack enjoying themselves because sometimes you can get wrapped up in this job and it just feels like another job. You know, you get you get bogged down in it. Yeah, um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of grind. It, it wears on you throughout the season. So when I get to see people, you know, having fun, enjoying their time, and especially if it's somebody that is on my TikTok and and comes to talk to me, you know, it's a uh, so I'd, I'd say the fan inter, uh, interaction and just being there in the atmosphere when it feels good would be the best part. Knowing you're part of what's making it happen too. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of pride that comes with that and satisfaction that comes with you know having your hands in it for mm-hmm. sure and contributing. Yep. Do you spend any time in the pits during the cup races? Are you usually in the stands or out by then? Sometimes. Uh, every now and then, I'll kind of get a wild hair and want to stay for the cup race. Uh, I The first time I did it this year was Martinsville, and that was a mistake. Yeah, that race. Uh, it was – not only was it uh, uneventful, it was extremely cold. If uh, anybody was there, they'd tell you. You know, it was it was very cold. I, I hated it. But, no, yeah, I – I like to stick around sometimes. Um, I'm thinking about sticking around for the cup race this weekend at Daytona. I might for Darlington just because I can drive myself there yep. back at a short distance. So, yeah, I like doing that. And uh, I, I don't really hang out in the pits per se on, on a cup day just because I'm, you know, I'm a up and comer myself and I don't, I guess I don't want to have, uh, have my face, you know, out there on pit road you know, while these guys are, are trying to work and whatnot. Yeah. So, cause uh, yeah. I got, I got a few friends that are, uh, that have made it to that level now and it, it'd be cool to see them, but it's better just to, just to stay out of that, that group until I'm, uh, I'm ready to hang with those guys. Yep. You'll have to stay for the cup race for at Bristol. Cause I'll, I'll be there. Yeah. That, uh, that one's probably going to be one of them for sure. I'll have to say what's up at some point. I'll be there pretty much the whole weekend. So, yeah, we'll link up while I'm out there. I'm, I like, uh, I like hanging out on the cup days. I actually have time. You know, it's hard to meet with people when I'm working. So, mm-hmm. all right. The next one is from Jacob underscore Belboni. He says, How long do you prepare? You kind of answered this one, but how long do you prepare for each race and how much practice do you do in your own time? Yeah. So, you have the two practices a week we'll do you know between four to six pit stops uh sometimes more on a on a given night and i i try to get into the uh into the shop as much as i can you know as allowed uh due to scheduling and get in you know individual practice myself i'll I'll work on drills and individual movements much like you would say for football or basketball you know Mm -hmm. baseball same same concept but uh, preparation before a race is a big thing for me. Um, I have to be, so it, it's smart to be hydrated, but th- these things are just a necessity specifically for me. I like to be very well hydrated. Um, I eat a lot, a lot of carbs before, uh, the day before a race. And I try to, I try to keep the protein intake down the day of because it takes so long to digest. So it's, I don't like to eat anything that's going to slow me down. Um, mm-hmm. very picky about that. And staying cool is a big thing, especially this year. It seems to be hotter than ever this year for some reason, but 
in those fire suits, it is immensely hot, uh, especially at certain tracks. And most fire uh, most fire suits are black for whatever reason. Yeah, they are. Uh, yeah, so you have to. Then you're wearing a fireproof, you know, head sock, a head covering underneath your helmet, and it it gets very warm. So you have to take care of your body there. I like to listen to music to get in the right frame of mind, because when at least when it comes down to me. Uh, whenever I have a good day um, in the pit box, it is because I prepared right yep. and I'm and I'm in the right mindset and everything lines up good, you know. So eventually these type of things will become second nature and I won't have to focus so heavily on preparation. But until then, yeah, I, I prepare pretty tediously. Nice. All right. The next one's from Garner.Sent9. This is actually my little brother. He wrote one. <laughs> He said, favorite driver that you change tires for and why? Uh, hmm. I'd, I'd say uh, Stefan, Stefan Parsons, for sure. Mm-hmm. As, uh, he's been my favorite. I, I pit his car earlier this year, and for the for the first half of the year, you know, I pit his, uh, his 99. And the reasoning is he's he's become a friend of mine since then, and – He's very open with us. Uh, he's very understanding. He's, he notices things during the pit stop that other guys haven't, that I've, you know, I've noticed. And he's, uh, he gives a lot of feedback. He wants to hear from us after the race. He's, uh, he, he takes a lot of information in and he cares. And, That's cool. Yeah, and, and on top of that, it's, uh, he's always trying to get better. And above all of that is the fact that I've made – a lot of uh, developmental progress this year. And the reasoning was because I was on that car so consistently with the same group of guys and that development came a lot faster. And I got a, a, a more firm grasp on what I'm doing now. You know, the, uh, like just my development as a, as a tire changer has been, has been sped up a lot because of that car and uh, having him there. And, you know, like I said, you know, the men, you have to be right mentally. You have to be right physically. And him helping out there helped out mentally. Being with the same group of guys helped out mentally. And everything else, it's it's way easier when you just have to focus on your job and there's no other outside uh, distractions or questions. So I'd yep. say Stefan for sure. Nice. Kind of sad he uh, kind of sad he went away. Yep. Yeah, it's too bad. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for the fan questions we had some others but i kind of just combined them because a lot of people <laughs> ask the same thing yeah i got you so this one's who was your favorite driver growing up dale jr nice. yeah i was uh you know being from talladega i my mom's huge dale jr fan and that was that was junior nation man back then it was that's all you saw at the racetrack it was 80 percent dale jr and then Everybody else was just there, you know. Uh, yep. So yeah, he was he was a big, a big one of mine, and I was uh, having spoke to him since I got into the sport. He's just as friendly, down to earth, humble as you would think he is, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's and that's a that's one big thing about Junior is that it's not a facade, you know. That's just who he is. So I'd say yeah. he remains one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I get that impression from him just listening to him talk and everything that's exactly what he seems like how he'd be if you saw him 
He likes to talk about football. He does. That's, uh, yep. That's his, that's his go-to is uh, Washington. Nice. So you've talked to him a few times? Uh, twice. Yeah. It was, uh, nice. it was more of in a professional setting, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to – oh, you must have seen him win a few times then too, right, at Talladega? Oh, yeah. In that oh, early yeah. – he was winning every race there at one point. <laughs> Just about, yeah. It must have. <laughs> and that was – time and place to be a Dell Jr. fan. That's yeah. Sure. Yep. The, the stands were fu- filled back then. Well, yeah. And, I mean, I'll say it earlier this year, it was uh, it was packed. I went, yeah. to, I went to the Dega Cup race earlier this year, and it was it was just like I remember it. You know, as a kid, you can't hardly walk around for all the people. I love I the noticed. energy when the stands are packed. I noticed a lot of the stands this year are selling more than they yep, have, indeed. so that's cool. That newer gen car has, has brought a lot more excitement, that's for sure. There's way more rivalries, too, it seems like, and more fights and everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems that way. Another question, what is your goal in NASCAR as a crewman? My goal, I think, honestly, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, my goal is to just to leave a lasting impression while I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any real high set bar expectations or anything like that. I would love to win. You know, everybody wants to win. Um, yeah. If I had to put a, a ridiculously high goal, I would love – to end up winning a uh, winning a championship in any of the national series, and that'd mm-hmm. be awesome. But you know uh, that's extremely difficult to do, and some guys go their whole career without accomplishing that. So yeah, not to say I don't believe for a second I can't do it. It's just that's that's not really my overall goal. I, and you know, unlike a lot of other guys, it's I just like being here. I like doing it. I, I love the job. Uh, I'm not, you know. I don't know how long I'll be sticking around because a lot of, uh, you know, injuries coming from the, from the military are, are starting to resurface. And mm-hmm. I don't know how long my body will allow me to do this, but I'm going to do it for as, as long as I can. Yep. Would you, would you want to stick inside of the NASCAR world if you ever stop changing tires? Yes, I would love to. Uh, if I could do something media related, I'd very much like to do something like that. Um, whether it be with a team or with NASCAR itself, uh, I'm very passionate about how NASCAR is sold to the world. And it seems, you know, I've, I've watched uh, races from the early 2000s and the the passion that was behind the marketing there seems to have kind of faded away a little bit. Now there's a lot of reasoning for that. Uh, NASCAR is very much more business oriented now and there's a lot of lines you can't cross. There's a lot of tape up. Mm-hmm. So I don't a hundred percent understand those things. I'm starting to kind of get back into, uh, the swing of things here. And I kind of under, I'm starting to understand it a little bit. My, my boss shines a lot of light on the way, you know, the business model works and, and whatnot, and how social media and stuff is viewed and handled. So social media is a huge thing and it's only getting bigger. You see all the teams picking up different uh, social media platforms. And so if I could do something media related for, for a team or for NASCAR in the future, yeah, I would love to stick around after I can't change tires anymore. Yeah. And you've done a good job on your TikTok. What do you have for, you just hit 415,000. Yep. 
how'd that all start? You just decided one day to post the <laughs> helmet cam clip. So my, my buddy, he, uh, again, I won't, I won't name drop here, but he does work at RFK now. And he posted a TikTok when TikTok first started coming alive mm-hmm. and it got something like 900,000 views, something like that in just a couple hours. So I was blown away. And there have been guys that have, you know, kind of spearheaded the, uh, the charge on TikTok, you know, guys like Cap Houston and uh, Dakota Bonds, you know, they're they're pretty big on TikTok and they they have a large following as well. Caps has exploded, but I kind of followed suit with them and started posting, you know, pit stops and stuff. And this is when this is uh, I was very inexperienced and fresh and I didn't really care. You know, I knew I knew other guys were going to talk about it and whatnot and, you know, have. Uh, their own judgments and opinions yeah. on it, and that's fine. You know, it's I'm not you know here to impress anybody, but yeah. I I saw the following kick up, and uh, so at first it was more of like a greed thing. I just really wanted to uh, get the following, uh huh. But after I got it, I uh, it's kind of shifted more into how can I you know twist this into a good thing, and that's why I like to do you know podcasts and stuff like this, and uh, meet with people at the track because. If I were that kid still in 2000, back in the day, uh, I would want somebody who was in my position now to do the same thing for me. So uh, it, it changes, you know, it changes people's lives. Sometimes they, they make memories at the racetrack and they remember them forever. Like when uh, I left out a huge point, but when I, when I was a kid in 2000, my first race, my stepdad took me down the pit road and I met uh, Jeff Gordon's pit crew and wow. they, uh, I didn't get to see the drivers but I met Jeff Gordon's pit crew and they signed the hat for me so yep. that uh, that always stuck with me and if I can help somebody else uh, make memories or change their opinion on certain things for the better or make any sort of lasting impression then that means way more to me than my image amongst you know guys mm-hmm. within the industry as controversial as that may sound yeah you're really like impacting making a difference in the sport helping us so. that's that's the goal yeah since you started what's if you have one what's the most memorable thing you can think of the most memorable moment most memorable uh let's see i think probably most impactful for me, I think, was I wasn't even at a NASCAR track. I was at Five Flags Speedway in Pensacola mm-hmm. for an ARCA race, and uh, I walked along the fan along the fence, giving away lug nuts to to fans, and it was uh, it was really cool, you know, to see the see kids kids run up like it's an ice cream truck, you yeah, know, wanting <laughs> wanting lug nuts and whatnot, and and I didn't, you know, little as I know, five lugs was going to go away. So they're even, it's even more special now, you know, if somebody, we, like I say, a lot of us just see it like a job. So something like a lug nut isn't important to us, whereas it is to say, you know, a a six-year-old who's at his first race. So yeah, that's, uh, that's always, always special. It makes me, makes me feel good. So I do it as much as I can when I'm, when I think about it, you know, like I said, you get sucked into the job, the work life for, you know, often a lot. So yeah, I think I think the NASCAR people that work in NASCAR see the same stuff every day. That's, and it becomes normal, but to fans, it's like the littlest stuff is the coolest stuff that 
they don't yep. talk about because it's they don't think anything of it. Just like what exactly. you just said with the lugs. So you have done some one one lug nut things, right? Some practice. I've got my hands on it. Yeah. What's what's that like? Is it harder, or easier? I mean, I would think it's harder because they're a little seem like they're a little harder to get tight. Well, uh, just my little bit of experience and having seen and watched a lot of it as well. Uh, I would say to put it simply, methodically, it's easier when you're thinking about just getting one lug nut on and off. Mm-hmm. The, I, that idea is easier. Like the precision isn't quite as needed, but yep. there's a, uh, it's different timing. It's different choreography. Uh, that, that time it takes you to get into position and to move from the t- uh, one side of the car to the other is much more important now. So you have to be a lot faster there. So I wouldn't say overall that it's easier, but uh, I, w- I would just say that the lug nuts themselves are easier. Mm-hmm. Moving to one lug nut, that's easy. But uh, putting it together with everything else isn't. And that uh, those pit guns are shockingly heavier than oh, what we're used to. And they so, that that big... Um, what's it called what the you type yeah looks yeah, real the heavy is, the socket's heavy the gun is heavy it's bulkier it's harder to to hold if you have smaller hands like somebody like me it's harder to maneuver that kind of weight um with one hand and uh the whole pulling and then rolling the rolling the tire back to the wall it's very methodical and it's just uh it's a different animal so yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was it's easier per se, but it's uh I would say it's different. Yep. It's definitely different. My dad's gonna listen to this and kill me for forgetting what a socket is. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, brain fart. <laughs> what did I notice you have like a Patreon that people can subscribe to. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Is that I know uh, no, the guideline. That, that never that never went anywhere. Uh, I I thought about it uh, as far as I was going to keep certain like I don't know I was going to try to uh, document like travel and stuff like that and do a little bit of uh, just extra stuff that kind of takes away from my time but shows you know more of like what the day to day life is like. But uh, I've spoken to my boss about social media stuff we've i've kind of decided to backpedal on that for now at least uh we we're working on something for the future so Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like you got to be careful with all the helmet cam stuff and all that careful you do but uh Uh, yeah there's a lot of gray area there you know you can accidentally show something that wasn't meant to be shown you can uh Mm -hmm. if you're making money off said videos uh if you're showing someone, if someone's sponsor is in the back of that video and it's a very popular video, that sponsor got a lot of eyes, you know, and you would think that it would be a good thing, you know, for that yeah. sponsor, for that yeah. company, but they're going to want, you know, some companies will want a cut of that money that you made, even if it's not that much. So there's for, a lot of tape. There's a lot of tape up. Copyright reasons, right? Stuff like that. Yep. That too. Yeah. Yep. So we have to be careful moving forward, but we're, uh, we're working on something in the back to try to try to get people, uh, I guess, more engaged with what we mm-hmm. got going on. Yeah, well, you got a ton of followers, so you can definitely. Get yep, we're going to use them. We're going to use yep. them for good. Is there anything else 
you want to talk about? Uh, let's see. No, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, am, I do need some. I uh, wonder if there's anybody listening that can help me with getting some of the uh, TikTok followers over on Instagram because none of them have carried over. That's yeah, so it's weird real hard. <laughs> it's hard to get followers from one platform to another just because it's work for them they go over there and then follow you so um <laughs> have you I posted got a instagram button on my TikTok, yeah so I don't yeah know. hopefully i can get some over there have you posted reels um on your like your tiktoks onto instagram reels no uh i'm gonna i'm gonna start doing that though cause... yeah definitely do that that'll help because <clears throat> I, I didn't i think i posted I had a really, really good uh, short rib box tea at a Irish pub the other I night. Saw it. And I, that was fun. Yeah, I, I posted it and it got a lot of attention on Instagram for no reason. I mean, I'm just eating. It's I, just I wasn't funny, eating. Yeah. It's just weird. So yeah, yeah that's uh, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start transferring uh, transferring them over a little bit. Yeah, the the reels are good because they'll. It's kind of like TikTok where the algorithm will help you a ton. Yeah, so that's what I try to focus on. All right. Well, I think anything else, I, I'm sure we could talk all night, but there's nothing I can think of right now. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I think that's. Uh, What's your weekend look like, Daytona? Well, we'll uh, probably fly down there Friday, and I'm thinking possibly I might stick around. Like I said, for the mm-hmm. Cup race, so. Might grab a hotel down there. We'll see. I I really really I Daytona is one of those that I just I love to watch. So I'll yeah. find a way to watch it one way or another. If I don't stay, I'll you can guarantee I'll be in front of a TV watching. Cool. So. so if you don't fly back, you have to find your own flight. No, uh, all that's figured out ahead of time. You know, our oh. uh, our boss coordinates all of that, and yep. we'll we'll know how we're getting back before we leave. Yep. Nice. All right, well, I think that's – I'll have to have you on again. Yeah, we'll yeah, we can, we, can, uh, we can wrap it up and save it for uh, – I'll, I'll definitely come back on. You just yep. let me know when, and uh, we'll we'll link up later, probably the end of the season or something. Yeah, and I want to say thank you for your service, too, in the Marines. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. No appreciate problem. Appreciate you having me on. No problem. Hopefully, we'll, we'll definitely see each other at Bristol. I'll stay in yeah, touch. Yeah, for sure. All right, thank you. Thank you. I'll edit this up and get it out as fast as I can. All right, man. Take it easy. You too. What's up, guys? Hope everyone's doing well. Just finished recording episode 36 of the First Offense audio installment. This is a special episode. If you haven't already seen, we have a guest, Brandon Henry. He's a tire changer in NASCAR right now. Most know him as the pit marine because he was actually a marine and later became a crewman and today Brandon's going to share how he went from watching Dale Jr. win Talladega in the early 2000s to watching the Talladega race in a tent in Afghanistan in 2014 to eventually standing on the pit wall at Talladega and pitting cars. So it's a really cool story. It's great for anyone who wants to join the military or even wants to join NASCAR because he talks about the steps that he took to get to where he is today and the steps that he continues to take to progress in the sport. 
make sure to stay tuned to the end because we gave him some rapid fire questions some fan questions and he gave some really good insight firsthand about what it's like being in the pits pitting cars the intensity of it and some other cool things about it one more thing before we talk to brandon there was a few audio issues in the first half of the podcast so just bear with us brandon lives down in north carolina and i'm up in massachusetts so we had to make it work regardless it was a great time talking to brandon and i'm sure you're gonna love it so here he is brandon henry on the first or fence audio installment hope you guys like it <laughs> 